Deadbeat Scroll by Mark Coggins is slick, sardonic, and suspenseful. Everything a great thriller should be, says New York Times bestselling author Lee Child. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 10. The Beat Hive The door opened on a short hallway. Immediately to the right was an alcove with a niche in the wall for an old candlestick phone, or at least a replica of one. The phone lay in pieces on the floor. The bedroom was farther to the right, and whoever tossed it had used the frappe setting. The bed was completely destroyed. The frame was upended, the slats dumped on the floor, and the mattress and box springs flung to the side and crisscrossed with knife slashes. Sheets and covers were strewn across the room, and the pillows, also slashed, had vomited feathers everywhere. There was no closet or dresser, but a mirrored wardrobe had been pitched on its side. Clothing on hangers, shoes, socks, underwear, and even a vibrator were piled in front like guts from a disemboweling. Shards from a broken mirror glittered in a halo around the pile. The rest of the apartment had been treated much the same way, from the ransacked medicine cabinet, whose contents had been clawed out as if someone was scooping candy from a piñata, to the Salvador Dali meets Jackson Pollock installation in the kitchen, complete with bent utensils, broken crockery, and skid marks of sour-smelling condiments in three different shades. I had no idea what was being searched for, how big it was, or if it had been found. But there was no doubt in my mind that a lot of anger had been involved. There didn't seem to be any percentage in shifting further through the detritus, so I backed out the way I came, being careful not to touch anything as I went. At the door... I wiped the knob to remove any prints, pulled it shut, and snicked the deadbolt back into place with the key. I peered over the banister to make sure the coast was clear, then made my way down the staircase to the entryway below. I paused beneath the chandelier. After all the effort I'd put into finding the house, it was disappointing to leave empty-handed. I thought back to my conversation with the hairdresser and his description of the Victorian and its garage. I flipped through the keys on Corinne White's ring and found one that belonged to a car, a late-model Lexus, by the look of it. The garage was one floor down, and as I didn't remember seeing a lock or a handle on the exterior door, I assumed there had to be a way to get to it from inside. I walked behind the main staircase and found a door that opened on a plunging stair with a splintery, unvarnished railing. A dull yellow light came from below, and as I descended, the air got cooler and mustier. At the bottom, I stepped onto a rough concrete pad that had just enough space for three cars if you didn't mind maneuvering around the metal poles shoring up the ceiling. The only vehicle in the place was a bronze Lexus SC430, shoehorned into a spot between a moldering brick wall and one of the poles. 
I pressed the lock button on the fat end of the key and was rewarded with the sound of the doors clicking open. The car's interior was nearly spotless. The only things inside that weren't factory original were a small bottle of hand sanitizer in the glove box and a couple of reusable grocery bags from Whole Foods in the back seat. The trunk was my last chance. I walked to the rear of the car, patted the lid for good luck, and pressed the button. The lid yawned open to reveal several rolled blueprints and another grocery bag with a can of olive oil in it. Each of the blueprints was labeled with the address of the Russell Street house, and once I got them unspooled, I determined that they were the drawings for the remodel. This couldn't have been what all the fuss was about, especially since the plans would also have been filed with the Department of Building Inspection. The olive oil seemed even less promising. On closer inspection, however, I realized that the can was not new and it didn't contain oil. It was a half-gallon tin decorated with a lithograph of two grizzly bears frolicking under an olive tree. From the style of the lettering, the fading of the paint, and the discoloration on the tin, I guessed it had been manufactured in the 40s or 50s. Someone had fabricated a homemade lid from a scrap of tin, and once I pried that off, I found yet another roll of paper inside. I didn't know what it was exactly, but it wasn't a blueprint. The roll, a series of eight and one-half inch strips of paper scotch-taped together, must have been more than a hundred feet long. Covering the paper was manually typed, single-spaced text without margins or paragraph breaks. It was titled, The Beat Hive, and it was wild really wild, like this. Sunday morning in the beet hive, and wherever you look, there is wax and pollen and ciggy butts, but no honey. Honey to make jelly, honey to make jelly, 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 jelly. The fag queen wants royal jelly. Yes, we got no jelly today, but that's okay. And everything will be okay because the new beet awakening is nigh. And the goddamn Buddha beet, not the queen, not the queen, you see, will take her place at the front of the conga line. Cha-cha-cha, we will go. Cha-cha-cha, out the hive we will go into the golden light. What? You inquire. The goddamn Buddha beat is a she? Yes, she's a she and he and a me when he, she, me wants to be. In the hive, gender is fluid. Gender is fluid as a melted milkshake from a moo cow. We've got drones and workers and drony workers and workery drones. All for the good of the colony. We swarm together and we screw together and everyone feels good. Everyone feels good. And if they don't, they can change. Change like they want. Being a drony worker doesn't boat your float, doesn't job to get done, spin the big wheel and try again. Everyone wins new plumbing or new ways to use their old... And so on for another 99 feet. I still had no idea if this was what had prompted the search of the apartment and the murders of Corinne, White, and Chris, but there was no disputing the fact that it was unusual. And maybe unusual meant valuable or desirable to some. To me, it seemed like so much drivel. I rolled up the scroll, intending to return it to its jerry-rigged container. It was then I noticed a card at the bottom of the tin. Thomas A. Fingerhut, Rare Books, was embossed above an address on 3rd Street. That didn't ring any immediate bells, but I knew as much about rare books as I did quantum mechanics. I shoved the card in my hip pocket and replaced the scroll. 
I put the tin and the blueprints in the grocery bag, slung the bag over my shoulder, and closed the trunk of the Lexus. Then I crept up the garage stairs into the first floor hallway, which was still as quiet as a convent. I padded up to the front door and hurried down the brick stairs to Clay Street. I was congratulating myself on making a clean getaway when I spotted a Nissan with two men inside parked across the street. They weren't looking at me, but they were definitely looking in my direction. Trying to act unconcerned, I went up the block towards Divisadero, and when I was several car lengths in front of their vehicle, I jogged across to their side of the street. Farther up the block, I ducked into a narrow alley between apartment buildings that led to Sacramento Street. When I was out of their line of sight, I began running to the corner market I'd seen earlier. If the men in the car were following me, I could hide there long enough to call a cab. If they weren't, I could toast my paranoia with a cold beer. Turns out, I had no reason to celebrate. The Nissan materialized at the mouth of the alley, and the driver stumbled out. I looked back, intending to reverse direction, but the other man was pounding up the asphalt behind me. That meant I had to dodge or rush the driver, until I realized he was holding a gun. I stopped on the sidewalk as the gunman ambled around the car to meet me. He had a big, lima bean head with a high forehead topped by a chunk of Brillo pad hair. His mouth was small, moist, and puckered, and he was wearing tiny rimless glasses that had slipped too far down his nose. His eyes were squeezed into narrow slits, and beneath a nub of a chin, his bullfrog throat had reddened from exertion or excitement. All in all, he looked like a B-movie Nazi scientist. Have you been shopping? he asked. Not for you, I said. You never know what I might like. I heard footsteps behind me and felt the bag being pulled from my shoulder. Childishly, I gripped it tighter. Lima Bean raised the gun and aimed it at my midsection. It had a suppressor screwed onto the barrel and some sort of space-age sighting system attached to the slide, but all the gizmos couldn't hide the fact that it was a twenty-two target pistol. Nice gun, I said. Yes, it is, and I wouldn't be disturbing any neighbors if I fire. It makes even less noise than a BB gun. I let the bag slip from my hand. Very considerate of you, I'm sure. I glanced back at the other man. He was taller, thinner, and younger. He had a foxy-looking face with something of a Slavic cast to it. Eyes and hands front, chided Lima Bean. You can walk away from here in good health if you cooperate. Curing my bursitis, are you? Shut up. Blueprints for the house, said the man behind me. His accent was European, possibly German. On the kind of olive oil. Olive oil, said Lima Bean. What did you want with that? I eat a lot of salad. Wait a minute, continued the man behind me. The con is just a container. It looks, it's what we want. The man with the gun formed his mouth into a prissy little smile that made me want to slap him. Where did you find it? he asked. Find what? Don't play stupid, 
The manuscript. What exactly is the manuscript? You are even dumber than I was led to believe. Never mind. Just tell me where you found it. It was behind a false back in one of the kitchen cabinets. It made me feel the tiniest bit better to make them think they'd missed out on something. Impossible, said the taller man, coming around to stand next to Lima Bean. He had the oil tin tucked under his arm. Lima Bean shrugged. Even a blind pig finds an acorn. You better drive. The other man nodded and hurried round to the driver's door. He opened it, gingerly laid the can on the passenger seat, and got behind the wheel. Lima Bean backed around to the far side of the car, keeping me in his sights the whole time. He unlatched the rear door and stood with a gun aimed over the roof, smirking away. Well, this is goodbye. He leaned farther over the roof, and I realized with a jolt that he was going to shoot me. I dove to the ground, rolling into a bed of succulents planted in front of an apartment house. I heard a pop, followed by a louder whack of a bullet ricocheting off the concrete. Hey, what's going on here? came a shout from further up Sacramento. The door to the Nissan slammed, and I watched as the rear tires spun out of view. I had gotten to my feet and was dusting off my knees when a mailman in a pith helmet and navy blue shorts came up the sidewalk, pushing a little cart with a satchel full of mail. Was that what I think it was? he asked. Yeah. Damn Jehovah's Witnesses. You have been listening to The Deadbeat Scroll, a book the New York Journal of Books described as a glorious potpourri of violence, black humor, sex, and a hunt for a lost manuscript. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.